0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I, today, am Ed Reed. In fact, I have always been Ed Reed, Africa and LNG editor. I'm afraid Alistair Thomas is unable to join us today. Something about results, something about a busy day. I don't know. I think he should work harder. Um, (laughs) Who who also thinks that uh, Alistair should work harder is, is Damon Evans, Asia editor. And Hamish Penman, digital journalist. Chaps,
1: welcome. Hello, hello. Good morning.
0: And I think we're going to kick off uh, with, with you, Damon. Obviously, I think, you know, the the, the sort of the uh, the Russia conflict has been a bit of a continuing theme for the last few months, as I suspect it will continue to be, but uh, a bit of a different angle. I think we've previously mostly looked at the sort of the European side. So uh, bring us up to speed with uh, Asia and, and, and maybe some of those uh, opportunities that people are seeing from, should we say, distressed cargoes?
1: Yeah, I think... Distressed cargoes is certainly an apt way to put it Um, I've seen a lot of headlines in the past day or so coming from Europe about Europe um, Implementing an embargo or a complete ban on Russian oil into Europe. It's not quite the same story here in Asia uh, particularly in India Uh, just in the past day or so we've seen um, new reports about India seeking heavily discounted oil from Russia there's high level bilateral talks reportedly going on and it should come as no surprise that the world's second most populous country is seeking cheaper supplies of oil Um, it's seeking to secure russian cargoes at less than 70 dollars per barrel as other buyers shun russian oil with sanctions tightening around vladimir putin's regime in the wake of the invasion of ukraine now 70 dollars A barrel oil would be a pretty good deal at this point because I think Brent is trading around $110 per barrel. At last look, it's been trading in a range of $100 to $120 a barrel over the past couple of weeks, maybe months. I think at one point it hit nearly $140 per barrel just after the invasion of Ukraine. Mm now um this recent surge in oil prices yeah hitting levels not seen since you know june 2014 it's worrying india no end and the country with its 1.4 billion people faces an oil price shock Uh, india guzzles up to 5 million barrels or more every day of oil it's the third largest consumer of oil behind the us and china and it imports a whopping 85 percent of its oil needs its import bill is expected to hit $105 to $110 billion this financial year. And to top that, its oil demand is projected to jump 8.2% to just over 5 million barrels per day in 2022. Now, to to put it into context, India is probably the the fastest growing market for oil demand uh, aside from China. It's probably going to overtake China this decade. It could easily end up consuming more than seven million barrels a day, you know, by the end of this decade, and much of that oil goes into keeping some three hundred million vehicles on the road, and for different industries such as petrochemicals and plastics. Uh, India also uses diesel to produce some eighty thousand megawatts of electricity, and diesel generators provide electricity to a lot of private housing. So, oil, like everywhere, very important. Uh, particularly in a a large developing country that imports most of its its oil. As mentioned, it imports 85% of its oil. The bulk of supplies come from the Middle East, Africa, and the US. And um, as of last year, India only imported about 2% of its supplies from Russia. But that's changing. Russian flows of oil to India, which are not sanctioned, have increased significantly since March when the conflict in Ukraine started despite the tightening international restrictions in areas such as marine insurance and pressure on New Delhi from the US making the trade more difficult. Still, energy purchases from Russia remain minuscule in comparison to India's total consumption, according to an official statement by India's press office. And to quote the press office, India's legitimate energy transactions cannot be politicized, energy flows are yet to be sanctioned, it said. Which is quite interesting. So a completely different perspective from from Europe. And um, also earlier last month, we had a uh, US President Biden weighed in telling the, the Prime Minister of India that importing more Russian oil is not in India's interest. Um, it's not in India's interest to accelerate or increase imports of Russian energy and other commodities. Um interestingly in response India's foreign minister repeated his nation's previous calls for dialogue and diplomacy in relation to the Ukraine Russia conflict well while minimizing the significance of its Russian energy purchases and um, he he was he was reported he reportedly told a a journalist in Washington last month that India's total purchases for the month might be less than what Europe does in an afternoon and um, and and he quipped, "So you might want to think about that." He told the the reporter. <laughs> <laughs> in in terms of, of
0: of who's sort of paying that bill, right? So you said it's you know more than a hundred billion dollars. Um, and is that is that uh, is there like sort of state support for that? Is is the government picking up the bill for that? Is it is it in, is it unregulated? Like is I mean, basically, are the costs going to go to the government direct, or are they going to go to uh, you know the guy with a motorbike in the street?
1: Well, I I think it's heavily taxed in india so i think uh, you know i'm and i'm not sure like i know a lot of other countries in asia indonesia etc subsidize Mm. the price of oil india i'm not so sure but i'm pretty i'm pretty sure i read a report from the iea maybe early this year or last year about subsidies and how much money uh, is needed to be invested to move to the energy transition so I, i suspect it is subsidized to an extent but i'm i'm not sure and I know there's a lot of taxes on it. So there are ways that they can play with the price. Mm. But ultimately, I think Indonesia, uh, sorry, India is very price sensitive. I think the man on the street will probably feel the brunt of it. I think, you know, and there's already inflationary pressures there. Um, conversely, a country like Indonesia, which is also considering important Russian oil, uh, they cushion the blow a bit more from the guy on the street because rising fuel prices tend to lead to social unrest and the downfall of governments which which i think is probably also on the mind of the the politicians in india
0: i mean i think that's probably on the minds of uh, politicians all around the world isn't it i mean i think you know the uh, you know everywhere is, is kind of looking down this kind of inflationary sort of nightmare um and where prices are going up it's very uh, very tempting to blame the government we certainly do it in this country <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> um so I mean in terms of uh sort of next steps do you think that there's any chance that India will I don't know reduce its uh its its purchases I mean it seems like if you're not worried about uh Russia's invasion then it would be a good time to uh, snap up some uh, cheap crude right I mean you know India China they've got to be thinking this is uh this this is kind of looks like an opportunity well
1: yeah I think this is a trend I mean, in India, I mean, India's the world's largest buyer of Russian weapons, and I think the, the Prime Minister of India has resisted like overtures from the U.S. and Australia to scale back that relationship, insisting that that his na- nation needs Russian weapons to counter both Pakistan and China, and that the alternatives are too expensive. Um, that that's what was coming out in reports last month. I think. Um, You know, I think to quote, um, there were some numbers around in the news today that Russia's flows to India, the oil flows, you know, since March are more than the whole of 2021 already. So, I think you, you, these countries, I mean, India, they can't afford oil at over a hundred dollars a barrel, let alone when it's going to be 150 dollars a barrel. So, I see this this continuing. I think they will, I think you will see more Russian oil flow into to india unless it's directly sanctioned in some way and i think indonesia the same there there is talk a lot of talk not it not as much as it you know i think the government's less decided in indonesia behind closed doors they're not sure if they're going to go for it but but they also can't afford oil at this price and if russia's offering a, a you know a bargain discount seventy dollars a barrel eighty dollars a barrel i think you can understand why they're considering it um yeah, it's yeah, it's slightly different way of thinking. The of uh,
2: the difference in rhetoric between, well say India buying Russian oil and I mean most notably when China was suggesting buying Russian oil is quite uh, noticeable. President Biden straight away when he thought that the um, Russia could kind of pivot east towards China was threatening China with sanctions straight away, and now he's issuing advice to the Indian government as a. It's not, not quite the same level of flexing between the two
1: there. Yeah, well, I think the the, the India-US relationship, we're, we're trying to form an alliance against China. And that that's kind of fracturing a bit because India, obviously, you know, energy imports are, are crucial. And um, But yeah, that's a good point. Very valid. And are those imports, are they
2: going to kind of garner any sort of... Sp- opposition in India in the same way that they would do here? I understand they're very different energy needs and uh, and different circumstances, but is there likely going to be any kind of opposition to to f- funding a a war,
1: as, as it were? A uh, blood oil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know India very well. I'm not sure. To be honest with you, I don't think there would be much opposition to it. I can tell you what I've seen in Indonesia and um, I think it was the FT that ran the headline that Indonesia's, you know, after Russia's blood oil. And Indonesia, the, the the general man on the street, it seemed on social media, was like, well, you know, we should stick it to the Western government, and if we can get cheap oil, we should. And and that, that was kind of the attitude. So it's very, you know, I think the majority of Indonesia's population what is it, 250 million or something, most of them probably wouldn't care and probably aren't really following the war in... Uh, Eastern Europe.
0: I mean it is it is interesting isn't it how uh, different parts of the world see uh, the problems very very differently I mean I think Africa also a number of African states uh, feel a lot more blasé about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously not all of them you know Kenya famously sort of spoke out very early on against Russia's invasion but listen guys that's I think that's 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 all the time we've got for the uh, for the moments we're going to take a short break uh, and come back to hear some wise words from Hamish. Energy Voice and Bracewell present NEO2, capitalizing on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The energy transition will need to harness an array of new technologies with solar PV, hydrogen, and storage all playing a critical role. These three industries each have their own merits and challenges, but are certain to attract substantial capital and create significant opportunities for the global supply chain. In 2021, Energy Voice presented the first in our NEO series which focused on the US market. On Wednesday, the 18th of May 2022, in association with Bracewell, a leading law firm renowned worldwide for its unique depth and experience in energy, we are delighted to present a follow-up virtual event focused on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The international energy industry has much to learn from the rapid development of these technologies in the region, and our heavyweight panel will explore how solar PV, hydrogen and storage are shaping the new energy mix, and how to capitalize on the opportunities this transition presents. For free registration, visit neo-2022.com. So Hamish, uh, talk to me about the wild world of uh, rig rates. Yeah, good time to own an oil rig, it seems. Uh, A
2: super cycle in day rates could be around the corner. Uh, And that could mean uh, either party time or, oh shit, depending (laughs) on uh, who you ask.
0: Always going for that explicit rating on this podcast, aren't you, Hamish? (laughs) I don't know.
2: I always (laughs) like to, yeah, keep it a bit edgy. Um, but yeah, so this piece I wrote on a uh, rig supercycles is from a chat that I had with a uh, Finley Johnston, um, founder and an MD of Four C Global Consultancy, who are uh, based up here. He spent years working in oil and gas uh, in Aberdeen, uh, in business development, specifically kind of overseeing deals for securing rigs. Um, he founded just on background, founded Four C during the during the COVID, and and here we are. So thanks very much to him for. For, for speaking to me. Um, but yeah, so the backdrop against this, as we've discussed many times in the pod before, uh, the North Sea is back in the good books, energy security is the, the phrase of the moment, and oil and gas prices are in the attic. Um, so I mean, it all combines to make oil rigs a, a pretty attractive commodity. Um, it's a lucrative pursuit once again, and recovery is already well underway, it seems. So um, rates will increase. That was something that Finley was quite explicit about. But how much and, and how quickly depends on uh, FOMO, or the fear of missing out, usually associated with parties or nights out rather than oil rigs. But, you know, yeah. whatever floats your, <laughs> floats your rig. Um, so customers realizing that kind of unless they, they source a rig soon, uh, they could be stuck up a rather famous creek with a without a paddle, and their projects could be stuffed. Um, so now this demand for oil rig, it comes after years, kind of almost approaching a decade since the downturn, where they've been significantly out of favour. Um, so in that time, there's been a lot of consolidation of companies, kind of Valaris being the, the prime example, um, and there's obviously the Mask and, and Noble merger ongoing at the moment. Um, so lots of older rigs have, have gone the way of all things. There's been a lot of debt restructuring um, and not to mention it's really irked people in the Cromarty Firth who have had rigs out their windows uh, sitting there for a number of years now. So that's all combined to create what is a really tight drilling rig market. Um, and if demand surges, which there are suggestions it might, rates will spike kind of inevitably in that demand and uh, supply dynamic. Um, So it was quite an interesting quote that came out of it. According to industry analysts, there are currently four times as many rig inquiries as there are available rigs in the UK. So if all the inquiries turn into reality, then we will see a super cycle in the UK semi-submersible space. Um, And if that does happen, there will inevitably be winners and there will be losers. Um, Winners will obviously be the contractors, um, I saw in Valaris's recent results that its rig reactivation costs nearly doubled, and that it's preparing four floaters for long-term contracts. Uh, c Drill Two recently bagged some contracts after emerging from Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So it appears that this is uh, this is well underway. Uh, what of the losers? Uh, well, as the costs of of hiring a rig increased uh companies looking to spuds fresh wells could well take hits um, and there could well be more pain for decommissioning too another one of the sectors that's really been down on its luck in the last few years um or the costs of plugging and abandoning wells might well become prohibitive for a number of projects operators could well look to kick these campaigns down the road again to wait for the the rate to come down so just have to wait and see on that but yeah it seems like it could be time to
0: to club together and get ourselves a drilling rig, chaps. I think uh, that's an excellent idea, and I, for one, am ready to throw a fiver into the mix <laughs> for the uh for the energy voice uh, jack up. I'm mean, gonna suppose on that on that, I mean, is there did you give a particular insight into um you know what sort of rigs might be more in demand than others? Is it all rigs? Is it jack ups? I mean, you I think you mentioned semi submersibles there. Yeah, I think it seems like
2: semi submersibles will be uh, top of the pack, as it were, but also and and Finney did point this out. There's kind of a number of markets within the market here. So there's the, obviously the market for Jack ups and, and um kind of deep sea rigs and things like that. So Jack ups will see a uh, an increase as well, as will all rigs, I think. But semi submersibles will be will be top of the pile, um, which I mean and there's quite a lot uh, kind of around these parts, and that will certainly be the one um certainly be the case for the North Sea. I think that will be the main the main beneficiary of uh, of the um, return to
0: return to oil and gas that we're seeing at the moment. Uh, I, I mean, uh, Damon, what are you? I mean, how's uh, how's the uh, the Asia sort of side of the the, the drilling looking? I mean, as are you, are you seeing a sort of a similar upturn in uh, some some sort of euphoria?
1: I, I don't think we have the same kind of euphoria as, as as what Hamish detailed there. Yeah, I mean, we've recently had the the Singapore yards merged together. They've got loads of stacked rigs people haven't paid for that they've got to get rid of i think you know i think it would be certainly be welcome out here um talking about buying a jack-up rig for energy voice I mean, i've <laughs> been burnt badly in the last downturn so maybe i'll stay out of that but um <laughs> but, uh, you know it, it's certainly on you know i'd love to look into it more and find out what's going on in asia it's um it also I'd be also curious to know what's going on in whether we're gonna have a revival in uh, the deep water rig market globally. Going forward, it would it, be interesting to see what next year brings.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's 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 really interesting. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, sort of looking at the the Africa side of things, I think you know there has been uh, some a real move back into drilling, which has been really positive. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you do have these statements from companies, you know, saying essentially that they're stopping sort of frontier exploration. So. I think you know. So there was a, a report. So so Galp came out with its results this week and said, you know, they they'd, they'd spudded a well off Sao Tome uh, with Shell. And um, at the end of last year, obviously the world looked very different in that sort of post-COP sort of uh, slightly more sceptical outlook. But at that time, Galp said, I think that that this well off Sao Tome, Jacka, would be its last ever frontier exploration well. Um, GALP did not respond to my request for a comment as to whether this was still their plans or whether that had possibly changed now that the world has changed. But it it does seem that, you know, even if there's a little bit of, you know, sort of flexibility, that maybe some of these companies are going to, you know, sort of, you know, if they're going to live up to those net zero commitments, if they are going to say, cut production, that, that, that maybe they're not going to, uh, you know, kind of go back into it with the same level of uh, of high spirits. So, I mean, I I, I wonder who the new kind of, uh, you know, the new operators might be, right? I mean, I think, you know, obviously, I suppose there's a sort of a question around sort of national oil companies who might might be interested in that. But also there's a question about where. I mean, I think, you know, Africa may, may struggle, but the Middle East may kind of uh, see some real opportunities. So... I think it's it's certainly one to watch yeah definitely and i think perhaps this
2: cycle could be a a, a shorter one than perhaps we've seen in a in, in previous years just for for what you said there ed that the fact that a lot of these companies had, had kind of shelved plans for frontier drilling they now seem to be back on the cards but for how long we live in a kind of fairly things can change the pendulum can swift pretty quick uh can uh can yeah can shift pretty quickly so whether this is a, a long-term super cycle, whether this is perhaps well a shorter one, but it, maybe it's just going to be the last one we see before before that kind of green trend takes over. I mean, just on rigs while we're uh, while we're here, it's uh, there was quite a big deal in the North Sea this week with um, Well Safe Solutions buying the the Will Phoenix from a Willco drilling for about twelve point four million. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, in, in these parts, about a hundred jobs coming with that, and and for Wilco that was their last asset as well. So um, that looks like they have speculation that they could be could be on their way out. They do have the um, the Will Hunter as well, but that's in the process of being sold for recycling. So it doesn't really seem like they've got a clear path ahead of them, though. Stranger
0: things have happened. Indeed, indeed. I think I tell you what. I think that's going to be a point at which we leave this because I've got a good feeling about uh, some uh, exploration chat for my uh, section. And I'm gonna gonna pull host rank and say let's move on to my bit. Uh, so we'll come back after this short break.
3: Energy Voice presents Invest ABZ. Join us as we lead the conversation on Aberdeen's future as Europe's energy hub. This hybrid event taking place online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on Thursday the 26th of May looks to answer the question, why Aberdeen? We'll showcase the innovative leaders and businesses that make investment in the city's future a compelling proposition, covering topics such as technology and R&D, talent and skills, growth sectors and opportunities, and the future of oil and gas in Aberdeen. Our expert panels will share their vision for the city's evolution in a net-zero world, And we'll celebrate the people, skills and technologies on our doorstep exploring how that local expertise leads the way in the UK and globally. Whether you're part of Aberdeen's diverse business community, an investor considering greater involvement in this thriving market, or a representative of local or national governments, InvestABZ will provide essential insight into the region's potential. For free virtual or physical registration, visit investabz.com.
0: So uh, the last uh, part of our show today is going to be about uh, Angola, which it feels like has, you know, obviously had a, a, a few really sort of tough years. Um, the uh, they, they they were hit hard by some rather underwhelming exploration results. Uh, it's a high cost area. It's deep water you know when 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 oil prices aren't doing so well uh, angola tends to suffer which obviously represents a, a major challenge for the country oil you know being a a, a big share of its uh, of its revenues but there were some quite interesting deals that have been struck over the last couple of weeks where Essentially, Sonangol, the state-owned Angolan company, has been selling down some, uh, some 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 stakes and some assets and some licenses on the offshore, and so they've, they've 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 essentially the three kind of consortiums have, have come in, and um, they've struck. You know, we've now seen some. You know, the, the sort of the broad outlines of the deals. And it seems like commitments of a, just under just under a billion dollars have been made to uh, buy stakes in these in these fields offshore Angola. So um, there's uh, the, the the most recent one was uh, Sirius Petroleum and Somoil. Somoil being a, a locally owned Angolan company. Sirius is a is a, is a company that was uh, that's in the UK. And it's um, it's 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 very interesting that they've uh, struck this deal, and you know, and they've they've they are you know assuming that the the, the deal goes ahead, and they come up with the three hundred and thirty-five point five million dollars that they're looking for. They're gonna have a deal. Uh, they're gonna have stakes in 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 two blocks currently owned by by BP. So it's it's kind of going from being a company with a small amount of production, I think, in Tunisia. To uh, a sort of you know really sort of playing with the big boys, and uh, the interesting thing about it is that they are clearly willing to pay money for the producing assets. So there there are there are stakes in two uh, two producing blocks going for about sort of one hundred and seventy odd million each. And then there's a stake in a third block in the Kranza Basin where results have been, you know, less positive and it's all a bit frontier and deep water. And it's I mean, it's a massive amount of space. It's something like 5000 square kilometers. So a real uh, a, a real rub to run. But uh, to, to, to buy that stake in that in that sort of exploration license, I think it was half a million dollars. So I mean I think that really shows uh the sort of the state of the market, doesn't it? I think, you know, everyone that you talk to who's in the market looking for sort of deals, they are only really talking about producing uh producing assets. There's very little interest at the moment for exploration. I think, you know, there's been, you know, some talk and obviously We've seen some quite interesting moves, you know, uh, Namibia, obviously with Shell and Total Energies earlier this year with those two big discoveries, Shell now having moved on to uh, drill, participate in this well with Galpov, Sao Tome. So there is a sense that there is, a, you know, some degree of appetite for exploration, but obviously that's really just, you know, for the, for the larger players. I mean, I'm looking at this deal and I think, I mean, I can't help but think there's a very slim chance that uh, Sirius and Somoil to, you know, companies which, you know, they are growing and, you know, they've got, you know, aspirations obviously to grow. But I can't help but wonder whether they will actually ever get around to really, you know, sort of shooting the seismic, drilling those deep water wells. I mean, I think, you know, Hamish, you were mentioning, you know, that sort of potential for a super cycle. Obviously, you know historically these wells have been inc- incredibly expensive. I mean, I remember the days of you know people spending, say, a hundred million dollars on a on a on a single deepwater frontier exploration well. I think those days we we may not see again. Obviously, that I guess will kind of depend on a number of factors. But even so, I mean, obviously the costs are high for frontier exploration, and I can't help but feel that uh, that the exploration is going to sort of slip. And I think you know, and there there, there are a number of sort of you know. Ins and outs around these deals. But I think that the the broad trend really does seem to be a desire to pay for production and a sort of a token effort uh, to sort of show interest in in exploration. Obviously, I I suppose, you know, the idea would be really to hold it until a, a bigger partner can come along and sort of finance a deal. But you know, kind of coming back to that that point that I raised uh, in 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 your chat, Hamish. You know, will um, will 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 the, the the majors ever come knocking? I mean, it feels like, you know, maybe those uh, maybe those sort of uh, frontier exploration days may may not come again.
2: Yeah, it seems like you'd be looking for a state-owned company to be to be coming and, and picking that up. But I mean, it's another segment of Energy Voice where we talk about things that probably won't happen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah but at the same time right the production I think is also really important right? mm. I mean I think you know so we talked about BP and obviously you know uh Sirius and somewhat buying, buying into these these BP blocks and uh, you know BP is essentially Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it it sort of looks like BP as a company is pulling out and it's essentially merging its local business with with Ennies. And they're going to create a new independent called Azul, uh, which sort of seems like it's kind of BP's sort of, tactic at the moment. I mean, it looks like it's sort of doing sort of similar things in Iraq, maybe something quite similar in Algeria, you know, sort of potentially on the cards, maybe in Libya, where they are sort of moving away from this, you know, sort of direct exposure to uh, sort of, you know, I suppose frontier risk. I mean, I don't know if Angola would still be considered frontier for BP, given how many years and how successful it's been for the company. But obviously, I suppose BP in a way sees it as being, so it's not not quite so, so kind of core to its central purpose anymore. Uh, but I think that said, there is clearly uh, an opportunity to kind of grow those producing assets, right? I mean, I think... At the moment, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, sort of exploration around existing infrastructure. And I think, you know, there is, there is, I would say, kind of potential for that to continue. I think the, the one sort of note from uh, from that, that sort of serious statement that kind of came out this week was um, how they were saying that expansion would require, you know, essentially sort of long term high oil prices. I think they said something like sort of higher than $75 per barrel to, you know, justify... Uh, more producing assets, you know, expansion to existing uh, facilities on those blocks. So it's an interesting point where it's kind of like a, you know, kind of trying to take a kind of a position on those kind of long-term, uh, long term, long term oil prices, which clearly I, th- I think, you know, kind of plays into some of that discussion that you were having, Hamish, around, uh, you know, the super cycle. Is it, is it a long term super cycle? Are we seeing essentially structurally higher oil prices for longer? Um, which, I mean, I feel there are so many moving parts to that. It, it kind of feels a, a, a bit beyond our... Uh, our, our, our kind of remit it does a bit but if you if
2: you it almost reaches the point where you think if not now then then when and and ever because the oil price is higher than it's been for years people are wanting oil and gas more than they have done for years so if, if it's not a good time for to, to be pushing ahead with production and, and i suppose that applies to, to exploration and frontier drilling as well if it's not a good time to do it now then it doesn't seem like there is ever going to be potentially again because all the a lot of the situations or the the, the the moving parts that you mentioned seem seem right. Um, maybe they're just waiting for perhaps I don't know six months of, of um, continuity in that before they make the calls. But I would suppose a lot of that hangs on the situation in Eastern Europe. But with no resolution in sight, it would be a perhaps a rational bet to to assume that we're. That these prices and, and this demand for energy security is going to be at least around with us for, for the next wee while so yeah I mean it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they do fire the starting pistol on these and if they don't then Will, will they ever get off the ground? Maybe not.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, also? I mean, so so Sirius uh, has said, you know, they're planning to essentially raise debt to finance this 330-odd million dollars um, to kind of get it together. And I suppose that is going to be the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's going to be a kind of a requirement around, around hedging, you know, so if they do get the... the, the, the Bank or I don't know trader support whatever, then there will be some 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 hedges needed to, to provide some sort of degree of surety about future oil prices, and that maybe kind of feeds back into those kind of feelings around you know what comes next and whether you can take that punch to say look you know I believe that this is like a long term you know more than $75 dollar price. Damon, what are your thoughts? Are we are we looking at uh, structurally higher oil prices that would encourage people to return to Angola's deep water?
1: Yeah, well, if it's over $75 a, a barrel, then um, yeah, for sure, I reckon I'll stick my neck out and go for hundred and fifty dollars by September. Hello, three hundred dollars. Sure you- three hundred dollars a barrel this
2: decade. I was just saying you weren't. You you weren't betting during my segment. You weren't. You you had been stung before. I was, I was
1: gonna say that was rigs. Like, doesn't, doesn't want to put a fiber into the jack up. But, don't, uh... don't bet on rigs. Bet on the oil. Bet on the asset. But, um, you know, there's no. But in all seriousness, I mean, there's no underinvestment. Is massive. Oil demand is going up. It has to be going structurally higher. Okay, perhaps we've got a recession looming. Maybe there'll be a bust. But, you know, I think, you know, if you're going to bet on it and... not I don't mean bet on it literally. This is not investment advice. But, <laughs> you know, I think... You know, it, the odds are we're going to have higher oil prices. That, that's my view. I think, you know, if it goes back down to under $50 a barrel, I mean, where's the production going to come from? Where's the incentive to invest going to come from? And And... Demand is not disappearing into thin air like we are led to believe in in some of the mainstream media. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think, as you say, right, I think the, the you know, re- I suppose recession is the big worry, isn't it? And, I, you know, I suppose, you know, given that we're seeing oil prices where they are now, even with China seemingly in a sort of a series of, you know, sort of semi-permanent uh, lockdowns. Uh, given that we've still got in- extremely strong oil prices, um, you know, it does it does feel that. Uh, but I mean, again, you know, I kind of come back to this thing about you know how I should never make predictions <laughs> uh, because as as soon as I as as soon as I put my mouth on it, uh, I'm sure that something will go drastically wrong. But it does it does feel that, as you say, right, uh, it, the the sector has underinvested in future oil production for the last sort of what five, six, seven years. It feels like. And given these companies, you know, sort of seemingly moving away from uh, big spending and moving towards hydrogen, offshore wind, all those other commitments, it does feel that, you know, there there is... Going to be sort of a tough time ahead, doesn't it? And and you know the oil prices will uh, will stay high, which um, which obviously good for Angola, probably probably tough for,
1: for heating one's house at day, uh, in in the
0: winter. What are you what
1: are, what are you what are you thinking, Damien? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there with these big companies moving to hydrogen, green energy, etc. I mean, this what the other thing that I feel is the ESG pressures on people. That's you know we've got high oil prices now, okay, We're, and if high oil prices remain, but there's still this this pressure against you know the big western listed companies bps etc to invest so so where does it come from and you mentioned small independents earlier and bp hiving off um into these companies you know that that that's where it's going to have to come from these kind of new smaller independents i presume who are prepared to invest in in producing oil which is um kind of like considered toxic i think in you know western europe it seems but but with the whole geopolit- geopolitics playing out and um, structurally production declining and investment declining, you, you know, it's, um, yeah, we shouldn't make predictions. I think
0: you're, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, <but>. indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Stay well clear. I, tell, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's that's been, you know, great. And I think, you know, while everything else may be in decline, I'll tell you what's not in decline is our new energy voice out loud jack-up rig. I think, <laughs> you know, uh, we, are, we are ready to go. Uh, Hamish can, uh, can 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 uh, source this one, but listen. Uh, I think that's probably uh, enough uh, predictions and uh, gambling investment advice uh, for one for one episode. So, thank you, Damon. Thank you, Hamish. Uh, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening.
1: Out loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation.